This is Zips Unlimited, a show about the University of Akron, its programs, its people, and its community. Zips Unlimited is produced by WZIP-FM. Hello there and welcome to Zips Unlimited. My name is David Penta and due to recent events regarding the shooting of Jalen Walker here last summer, which I'm sure most Akron natives are familiar with, I decided to open a dialogue around protesting and interview professors here at the University of Akron in regards to protesting, but also in regards to how social media can play a role in today's generation of protesters. The two professors I chose to interview are Dr. Mary Therese. She's a School of Communication rhetorical scholar with immense knowledge on protests and the communication surrounding social issues. And I also interviewed Dr. Carl Kaltenthaler, a political science professor with an extensive background in social trust and mobilization regarding key social issues. Dr. Therese had some wonderful insight in regards to how protests start and what makes protests so effective. The history of social protest is one of my areas of expertise. So I've done a lot of research and published books and articles, specifically on women and girls in the suffrage and labor movements, um, women in the welfare rights movements, and um, more recently, um, activism against gentrification in urban areas. I've also had a history of activism. I, When I was in college, I protested against the Persian Gulf War. I participated in movements for immigrants rights, um, for women's rights. So I've experienced both practical experience as an activist and a lot of experience doing this research. Awesome. Um, It sounds like you've, you mentioned that you've been an active participant in protesting. I feel like there's nobody more knowledgeable to define protesting for me. What is your general definition for protesting? So protesting involves both symbolic and also physical action. So, you know, the use of communication, posters, signs, slogans, speeches, and then also physical actions like civil disobedience, sit-ins, sit-downs, etc. All of those symbolic and direct actions targeted towards some kind of change in institutions, change in policies, values, or beliefs. What does a protest look like today? I understand that, um, especially with my generation, there's a lot of cell phones out um, during protesting, which I'm sure you may have seen. Um, Cell phones out being during protests uh, likely to be uploaded onto social media, which is a whole other can of worms. Um, How do you think social media impacts our protesting? That's a really great question. Social media, and in particular the smartphone, has completely changed the landscape of protest um, in in really beneficial ways. So now communication is immediate. You can um, spread the word. You can raise awareness. You can um, create, a, you know, flash protest. You can gather and collect at the corner um, more quickly with smartphone technology. You can also, you know, of course, we have the capacity to record. So now when the police pepper spray peaceful protesters, as they did just last night in Akron, you can get that on your smartphone. So, you know, back when I was an activist and protesting in the 90s. We did things the old-fashioned way. We made flyers, which, of course, we still make flyers today. They, you know, they're, they're still helpful. But we made flyers, and we posted them up on trees, and we glued them to light fixtures you know, on the streets and things like that. Smartphones just make it a lot easier. Um, social media sites, you know, whether it's Facebook, book, TikTok, whatever, makes it a lot easier to publicize your cause and to get people on the same page. 
Um, you mentioned some of the good sides in protesting, uh, its benefits for organizational efforts and bringing people together. You mentioned instant communication, um, which is something that is more of a recent development. Um, are there any bad sides to social media regarding protesting or even our social issues in general? Is there any negatives? Yeah. So, you know, just as democratic and just causes can use social media to, or to organize, so can um, hate groups. So the Oath Keepers can use and do use social media to organize. Um, the people that stormed the Capitol on January 6th definitely use social media to organize. So it can be used for any cause. You know, it's it's of the medium, of course, is is. You know, it depends on the hands, uh, whose hands it's in and what the ends are for its use. Um, we mentioned social media and its impact on protesting. Is there a specific way somebody can protest without being in a march physically? Is there a difference? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So that, that actually does touch upon one of the potential downsides of um, smartphone technology, which is this idea that we feel engaged because we click. We feel engaged because we click like. We feel engaged because we, you know, joined a Facebook group or whatever it is. And really, that kind of engagement is, is um, it, it's a limited kind of engagement. In fact, it's called slacktivism. Some people call it slacktivism. It's not exactly activism, right? It's kind of the slacker's version of activism. It's an easy form of activism. I'm not saying don't click your likes and don't join groups, but really what social movements need, you know, what what um, what we need here in Akron around the Jalen Walker case is people, physical bodies gathering together, marching day in, day out, and demonstrating what uh, you know, the gathering that I, that I was a part of on Tuesday, the gathering last night. Well, this is just the beginning because for there to be real substantive change, it requires a lot of struggle. As Frederick Douglass said, there is no progress without struggle. Um, and, and power does not, you know, concede their own uh, power does not concede easily. It requires a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. We uh, have seen in, throughout history the uh, use of disruption tactics to uh, the advantage of protesters. Um, social media uh, d disrupts certainly differently or maybe not at all. Um, what are your thoughts on that, on disruption tactics within social media, like, say, boycotts, uh, for example? Oh, yeah. So boycotts have played a really important history in social movements. Um, so in, in civil rights, boycotting was, was, uh, was as important as many forms of civil disobedience and boycotting and withholding your economic power um, in um, – Boycotting has worked, for instance, in various states that had repressive LGBTQ laws and businesses refused to um, hold their conferences there or have moved their headquarters out of those states. So boycotting is definitely an important tactic. Um, and you could disagree with this, but I see a lot of change within our protesting, the way we protest. Uh, my parents may protest differently the way I do. And uh, with the access to Internet only getting bigger and bigger and the social media, do you think maybe the way our kids would protest would be different? My kids personally, like, you know, is there is there a pattern that we may be able to predict here? 
That's a really great question. I wish I had a crystal ball and could see into the future. But if we look at the long picture, you know, if we look at the history of protest, which is which is what I've done in my scholarship, so many tactics, so many strategies, so many forms of direct action have, have you know, in my opinion, proven kind of tried and true, like factory walkouts, halting your work on the job, walking out of the job, um, so that that then catches the attention of owners of CEOs who are losing money because you've walked off the job, or occupying a um, an intersection, calling attention to the cause, um, boycotting these tried and true forms of action, and then they're enhanced, I think by the affordances of um, smart technology, of, of smartphones and so forth that have the immediacy, that have the reach. Think of how many people, this is another thing that's so different from when I was protesting in the 90s. Well, it's so easy for me to reach hundreds of people literally with just one click, whereas, you know, with putting up flyers around campus, well, that's a lot more time consuming and I can't even be sure of how many people are going to see my flyer. Right. Um, is there room for improvement in the way we protest at all? Is there a tactic maybe that we could utilize more? Um, I know social media is a pretty new uh, technology for, you know, in the last 10 years or so. Um, it's been uh, within way more hands through the use of cell phones and access to the Internet, like I mentioned before. Um, is there any way we can improve the way we protest or utilize our social media tools better? That's another great question. I think to improve how we're approaching things, I think it's important to know that social media should go hand in hand. It should be in tandem with what we call on the ground efforts. Mm -hmm. We need to continue to to um, make sure that our movements are inclusive. And listening is also really important, especially for people who occupy dominant positions. So I am a white person, and when I'm showing solidarity um, with the community in Akron around what happened to Jalen Walker, I need to make sure to keep white privilege in check, to listen, and to make sure that the people most impacted by the issues are the people who are leading the effort. Uh, this is my last question for you today. Um, I was curious on your thoughts for um, any differences in the way younger people might protest. Um, do you? And you've been protesting since the 90s, at least uh, from what you're saying. Um, I feel like you have a lot of exper expertise um, of physically being there and actually knowing. Um, so my question is, have you seen any differences in the way uh, younger people might protest um, versus, say, me, you know, like me versus my parents or me versus somebody else, you know, is there any differences that you may have caught or noticed? Well, so I was at the, the gathering, the demonstration on Tuesday, and there were a lot of young people there. It was a really wonderful gathering of people. It was really age diverse um, um, and so forth. And the young people there, you know, just reminded me of, you know, what I would have been doing in terms of holding posters, chanting, um, even some of the chants and Calls and responses are very similar and have, you know, been carried down through the decades. I think the one difference is that people have their phones in their hand. They're documenting it as it goes along. And that's just documentation in and of itself is important. 
because it's a historical moment. It's history in the making. And if we can preserve it, that's really important. Um, you know, if it's, it's an important project to to archive these experiences so that we can remember um, and learn from these events. But I think just having phones in hand, documenting, recording, and taking pictures is the one big difference I see. Are there any final thoughts to wrap up our conversation today? Well, I'm so glad that you are having this conversation. It's so important. It's important for us. It's important for us to be aware and engaged. That's exactly what a college education is about. It's not about just memorizing facts and and then forgetting them when we walk out of the classroom. It's about learning how to be good people. I know we all want to get good jobs when we graduate, but learning how to be good people and engaged um, in our communities is really important too. So I would just encourage folks that if you don't um, know much about what's going on, learn more, um, and become engaged in something, a cause that, that you feel strongly about. Dr. Treese provided a lot of insight as to how protesters can be engaged around a common social issue. In my discussion with Dr. Kaltenthaler, we explored this engagement and what this can mean with social media becoming more widespread. I've been a political scientist since 1995, so I've been teaching for quite a while. I've been in Akron since 2005, and the courses that I teach are really more about security than they are about politics, per se. Obviously, there's a political side to it, but uh, I'm, a, I'm what's considered a national security expert. And my research centers on, and the, and the work I do also as a consultant centers on, really why people get involved in violent extremism. So not so much peaceful protest, which is your interest probably, but, you know, why people go a step further and get into things like terrorism or other types of political violence. Uh, so that's, that's really something that's fascinated me. Uh, I've done this all over the world. Uh, most of what I've done in the last, say, 15 years has been in the Middle East and in South Asia, Iraq, Syria, uh, Pakistan. So, you know, focusing on groups like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, in various other groups that, that engage in terrorism. So that, that's really a fascinating question to me, why, why people get involved in this stuff. Um, is there any kind of similarity in the use of social media, like how we use it as a tool? Absolutely. Social media has been uh, an amazingly effective tool for spreading the narrative. So in other words, the, the, the set of arguments that justify why people should use violence. So if we're talking about violence here and not so much protest, but why sh people should use violence to achieve their political goals. And it has made it so much easier to reach out to people that in the past would have been uh, really difficult to reach. And if we think about Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda initially didn't use social media because when Al-Qaeda got started, social media really wasn't a thing. The group that we know a lot about that has really capitalized on social media uh, from its inception was ISIS. ISIS used social media very effectively. They had a, a unit within the, the, the proto-state, if you want to call it that, called the Legion, whose job it was to use social media to recruit people, and they were extremely effective at that. And so that's why you saw at one point in time you know, 30,000 people coming into the ISIS-controlled area of Syria and Iraq per month. So 30,000 people are from around the world were coming into that area 
you know, very dangerous area with lots of hardships. And most of those people were reached by social media. So that tells you something about the ability of social media to, to mobilize people. If we look at social media in the United States and we look at it in the domestic um, terrorism landscape, so to speak, or domestic political violence landscape, social media has also been central there. Uh, a lot of people uh, are radicalized through social media. They are, are mobilized, and those aren't necessarily the same things. Radicalization means they take on the, the set of ideas that violence is justified and necessary. Mobilization means they say, okay, I'm going to get off my couch or get out of my chair, and I'm going to go do something about this. So social media has been instrumental in that. Um, so you mentioned in, uh, how instrumental social media is to uh, those kinds of action um, actions. How does misinformation play a role into that? I feel like uh, misinformation, especially in America, is such a hot topic um, with its influence, and especially with social media being so accessible to so many, especially like young people, impressionable young people like myself, um, fall victim to misinformation. What are the the what makes so misinformation on social media uh, so impactful? Well, there's a difference between misinformation and disinformation. So just to to clarify real quickly. Misinformation is, is incorrect information that's passed along, uh, not on purpose, but by mistake. And that happens all the time. Disinformation is purposely misleading or false information that is passed along to a target audience. Uh, and so both of those things happen a lot. And disinformation has been used by people who you could call kind of political entrepreneurs, people who, who want to fire up a group of folks or want to mobilize a group of folks, and so they spread what are essentially lies uh, in order to get those people to do what they want them to do. So to believe a particular thing or to act on a particular thing that they're saying. Um, we know it's pervasive. We know, uh, you know, there's lots of studies that show that it's, it's, it's very common for people to believe things that aren't true. One, because they've been exposed to misinformation Two, because they've been exposed to disinformation. And then three, they've been exposed to the truth, but they just didn't process that information correctly to come at the truth. And part of this is, is due to a psychological process uh, that we, we, we refer to as cognitive dissonance, where people hear something that's true, but they don't want to believe it, and so they believe the version that they want to believe. So this also goes to why... Um, misinformation and disinformation can be so uh, widely accepted is that people want to hear things that reinforce their viewpoint, but particularly, once again, we think about this in, from a psychological perspective, and that this, is, this is really how I think about things, even though I'm trained as a political scientist, I'm, I'm really a political psychologist. Uh, people, people want to hear things that, that elevate their sense of significance, so make them feel like their worldview is correct, that they themselves have worth, that they themselves deserve respect. And so when they hear a narrative that, that tells them that, they're much more willing and, and, and uh, happy to listen to that than something that maybe challenges them or challenges their sense of who they are. You mentioned the uh, psychological elements of your role um, as a scholar, and it makes me curious if uh, you noticed any patterns within our protesting or even our social media. Is there something that we, uh, a reoccurring element, if you will, 
um, within those those two things, social media and protesting? Is there something that you see consistently that maybe not everybody's thinking about? Well, the people who are most susceptible to a narrative that is um, an angry narrative, a narrative that says, okay, you need to act and you need to fulfill this mission, that is more likely to resonate with folks who have a lack of significance in their life. So people who feel like, you know, I really don't control my destiny. I don't really matter that much. I, I really kind of feel like I'm, I'm acted upon. I don't, I don't act. And so those kinds of people are much more susceptible to a narrative that says, you know, you can be a hero. You can be a somebody. You can be somebody who's respected if you go do these things on behalf of this noble cause. So, so social media calls to action are going to resonate much more with those kinds of people who feel like, you know, I, I really don't matter. I'm, I'm left behind or, or society says that I'm, I'm not somebody to be respected. Those are the people that are much more likely to, to heed the call. Um, are you familiar with like the short form contents, uh, content, uh, sources like TikTok and Instagram reels or really any kind of, yes. So we see a lot of, uh, uh, social media, uh, news, um, programming on these sites. MSNBC has a TikTok. I'm sure Fox news probably has a TikTok. Um, they certainly have Instagram accounts. They spread all this information and recently they're spreading, um, and utilizing that short form content more. Do you see this as a concern or a good thing to spread the information? Um, so sources like that are generally not trying to spread misinformation or, or shouldn't say trying to. They, they, they try to police what they say. They try to be careful that they're not spreading misinformation. Um, and I would say that they're pretty careful not to spread disinformation. Um, that's that's sometimes in the eye of the beholder, but I think they try not to spread disinformation. Uh, it's it's the other sources of news rather than these these kind of big news corporations that are the problem, where you have an individual who who takes it upon him or herself to spread news, um, and and some of that clearly can be misinformation or disinformation. I've I've seen it myself in Instagram. I don't I don't have a TikTok account, but I have an Instagram account, and I try not to get my news from Instagram. Um, as you can well imagine, in my line of business, I, I get my news, my information from uh, typically m much more vetted sources than that. Um, but I do see that particular lines of argument and political uh, agendas get pushed in Instagram, and I've, I've seen things that are just clearly not true. I know that they're factually incorrect. Uh, that are getting pushed, and I'm sure there's people who are looking at that and saying, "Oh, wow, okay, I didn't know that. That's 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 uh, that's troubling, or that's something that we really need to rectify." Because usually these these things that I'm seeing, somebody's trying to get people riled up. They're trying to get people to to view a particular uh, set of folks or a country as as the enemy, or they're trying to get people to rally behind a cause. And you can tell that there's some very misleading information in there, if not outright lies, to try to get people there. Um, I have a few more questions for you. We're almost done. Mm -hmm. um, do you see any shifts or changes in our protesting in the decades to come? Um, 
it seems like we're, I mean, access to the internet is only getting bigger. Um, programs are being are out there to uh, give that access to internet in areas that otherwise wouldn't have it. Um, and this naturally, uh, one would assume that that would increase the use of social media um, now that more people have access to internet and cell phones um, and are generally more connected. Um, do you see any shifts or changes in our protesting in the decades to come because of this? Well, I think you're 100% correct to identify the role that social media has played in uh, really exponentially increasing the numbers of folks who, who get involved in protest. I've seen this in, in countries that I work on. For example, uh, in Iraq a couple of years ago, uh, I saw just a massive increase in the number of young people who were protesting, uh, men and women. And, you know, it was, it was pretty uncommon prior to that to see women out protesting in Iraq. And then you saw men and women protesting large numbers. Uh, and I, I, I was curious about that. And so I dug into it with some colleagues. And what we found out was the, the huge role, really central role, that social media played in this that these people were on social media, particular social media um, groups that were really mobilizing them to get onto the street. And uh, I, I only see that increasing, that kind of thing, the reach of social media. But I think the other thing that I look at into the future, uh, and I don't want to be kind of a doomsday predictor, but the role that AI is going to play in this is is really, I think, something we haven't come to grips with yet. But the ability to create false uh, video content or, or audio content through AI can be used to mobilize people. Uh, so if we talk about people spreading disinformation now, just think about the ability of AI to help with that. So to me, that that can be very concerning because... It, it sometimes only takes one incident to create uh, really a, a, a set of effects that can be very detrimental to peace and order. So if somebody wants to stir up trouble, it's going to be a lot easier to do that into the future. If somebody wants to protest for good, you know, through social media, that's easier to do. But um, I worry about what you can call malign actors, actors who don't really have the best interests of particular populations in place, who will try to cause them harm through manipulating how they think through AI. Um, do you have any final thoughts on protests and politics within our social media world? It feels like we're more connected than ever and will continue to be even more connected through social media access to internet like i mentioned before are there any final comments or maybe people uh, things that people aren't thinking about regarding that well it, it's interesting that you say we're more connected which is true but we're connected to the people in our echo chamber and so that's worrying uh we live in a country where there's people who purposefully live in a different reality and the people just down the street from them and I say they live in a different reality because all the information that they're getting is coming from people who um, share the same kind of ideological space or identity space that they do. And then there's other folks in their community who live in a completely different uh, information space or identity space. And that's very troubling to me because that means that actually we're not really all that connected. We're more disconnected than we used to be. 
Um, so social media has the ability to bring people together, but also very much has the ability to divide people. And I, I think I'm a little bit more concerned about the division than I am about the, well, I'm not concerned about people getting to know each other and, and learning about each other. I think it's a really good thing that social media can do. Um, but I am concerned about people um, selecting into echo chambers and not connecting with other folks. Um, there's all kinds of evidence that shows that more and more Americans are selecting where they live, where they go to university, um, you know, what religious institution they go to based on, on uh, political identity or other identity markers. And that to me means that we're more and more dividing rather than uniting. Is there any suggestions that you would have to fix that division? You mentioned echo, things like echo chambers, the existence of echo chambers, um, and how that's amplified by social media. Is there any way you think we could fix that issue, that kind of American division? Well, if we can create sources of news that are viewed as, as one, unbiased, and two, um, sources that everyone can go to. So, you know, when I was a kid, which was a while ago, uh, you know, people watched the evening news. You know, they watched ABC, CBS, NBC. And if you flipped from channel to channel, they were pretty similar. I mean, it was it was just, do you like this anchor as opposed to that anchor? But the content was pretty same, pretty much the same. They weren't pushing particular ideological ang angles. So most of America was getting the same news. Um, I, I don't think you can go back to those days, but if there was some way to kind of create more of a common source of information and not people relying simply on social media feeds, you know, that are driven by uh, oftentimes an algorithm, um, which is a problem in itself because it's just reinforcing, you know, that sense of, oh, this is who I am and this is who I listen to and this is who I believe, um, that would be a good thing. Do I have a magic solution to that? No. But I think, I think Americans need to really get serious about overcoming the divides in the way they get information. Um, it's easy to say, hey, let's stop political polarization. You know, let's, let's try to get political parties that are a little bit more cohesive. The, the, the first thing that needs to be worked on and the most important thing that needs to be worked on, in my view, is is the types of information that we consume. If we continue to consume these very divisive forms of information, um, you know, we're going to see a, a, a pretty bad trajectory for the country. Thank you for listening to Zips Unlimited and these interviews regarding protesting and social media. Zips Unlimited is available on all podcasting platforms. My name is David Penta, and once again, thanks for listening. Zips Unlimited can be heard each Saturday at noon on 88.1 WZIP-FM. Z. 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 Z